The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Verses 1 through 11. These are God's words. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to them, said to him, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. How we doing? Amen. Amen. It's good to see you guys again. Thank you uh, for um, basically showing up, and and hopefully there's something in this text that we can all uh, glean from and learn from. I want to talk to you a little bit about the reliability of the Bible to start us off. How reliable is the Bible, right? Because um, if you if you if you're if you're attuned to what's going on in current contemporary, you know, um, um, pop culture around America, there's this continuous onslaught on the reliability of the scriptures. People want to continually poke holes at the scripture, at scriptures, and so now they got documentaries. You know, uh, Hidden Colors. Is anybody ever heard of Hidden Colors? Is one documentary where they kind of poke, uh, poke try to poke holes at the scriptures. Uh, you got guys on the street that if you spend a little time with them, they'll poke holes at the scriptures. If you go to Facebook, you got some guys that'll be blasting Facebook posts, post poking holes at the scriptures. And, and, and so the question is, how reliable is the Bible? Because it seems like in our YouTube internet age, it isn't that reliable, all right? Because so many people seem to be poking holes at, into it. So how reliable is it? Well. No other book, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from a few apologetic uh, apologists and apologetic uh, websites here, but no other book is even a close second to the Bible as it relates to the number of copies available from original manuscripts or from, or from old dated manuscripts, rather. The, av- the average secular work from, from ancient times survives only a handful of manuscripts. In other words, if you look at some of the, more, some of the older books, the Julius Caesar work, uh, the Homer work, 
um, some of those old ancient stories that we still look at and we still read from, most of those works are only about, you know, most of those works only have about a handful of manuscripts that you can go back to and say, yeah, this is the closest thing we have to the original thing. The Bible isn't like that. Before the printing press, when people were actually making copies, physical, handwritten copies of things, the Bible had thousands of manuscripts available to it. And these manuscripts predate King, King James and the, the medieval times. These manuscripts go all the way back to the early 4th, 5th century, 3rd century in some cases. Now, even though the Bible has way more manuscripts for, and way more manuscripts than some of these other works, we tend to look at some of these other works that only have a handful of manuscripts and say, yes, we can trust them even though there's like only a handful, of them a handful of them available to us. And then there's a thousand manuscripts in the Bible of, of the Bible available to us and say, well, we can't trust that. You see, what, you see what's happening here? It's because the Bible speaks with authority and the other ones don't necessarily speak with authority that we tend to give more credibility to things that deserve less credibility versus things that actually deserve the credibility, which the scriptures do. The average gap between the original composition of a book versus the earliest copy of that book is about a thousand years. The average gap between when it was written to, when, to, to the actual manuscript that we have available is about a thousand year gap. But the New Testament, however, has fragments within one generation of its original composition. In other words, by the second century, we saw particles or parts of the New Testament. We have we have preserved parts of the New Testament dating all the way back to the second century. Whole books within about a hundred years of the original manuscript. And then most of the New Testament in its entirety is within 250 years of its completion. Now that typically is unheard of, to have a book that close from its original manuscript, but we have that. That's how reliable the Bible is. That's how much you can depend on it. The degree of accuracy of the, copy, of the copies of the Bible is greater, or of the, or, or the copies in general, is greater for the New Testament than for any other books, Julius Caesar's works, Homer's works, any other books that you can compare it to. The accuracy going from copy to copy to copy to copy is greater in the New Testament than it is in any other work. Now, when you look at that, you're going to see about thousands of copies, and people say, oh, man, each, all, all those manuscripts have so many variances. But when you look at the variances, what you find out is that they're not that significant. For example, one may, sit, one may say, in Christ Jesus our Lord, and another one may say, in Jesus Christ our Lord, and another one may say, in Jesus Christ our Lord, and, and leave off the D, for example. Does that make sense? In other words, they're not that vast, there's not a vast amount of variance between the manuscripts as you, would, as you would believe having listened to other people communicate it to you. It is clear, and this is what the apologists say, that the New Testament writings are superior to comparable ancient writings. The records for the New Testament are vastly more abundant, clearly more ancient, and considerably more accurate in their texts. Now, why did I spend time to talk about that? Well, it's because this is a text, verse 53 through 11. If you have a modern version of the Bible, you'll realize that there are brackets around it 
Anybody got, anybody got, see the brackets in your Bible? All right. And the reason that there are brackets around this text is because most theologians argue that this text is a text that was not available in the earliest of manuscripts. This is what renowned New Testament theologian D.A. Carson says. He says that modern versions, modern English versions are right to rule off from the rest of the text or right to rule it off, this passage, from the rest of the text, or to regulate it to a footnote. In other words, they're right to say that this wasn't there in the early manuscripts. And he says this is the reason. These verses are present in most of the medieval works. In other words, somewhere in that 14th, 15th century, they show up. But they are absent from virtually all of the early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us. They are missing from the earliest forms of the Syriac and the Coptic Gospels and from all the old Latin and Armenian manuscripts. In other words, all the old and ancient manuscripts do not have this passage here in John chapter 8. All the early church fathers, those that would give commentary and give explanation to the scriptures back in the second and the third and the fourth century, all of them omit this text as they're giving their commentary and as they're giving their explanation. None of them mention this text. They pass immediately from verse 52 in chapter 7 to verse 12 in chapter 8. No Eastern father cites this passage before the 10th century. Nobody quotes this text until you get to the 10th century. Moreover, he continues, a number of manuscripts that include the narrative mark it off with asterisks, indicating that there's a hesitation as to whether or not it's authentic. And most manuscripts that include the story that, that's here, they place some, place, some place it in other places, like John chapter 7, verse 44, instead of John chapter 7, verse 52, they start in verse 44 instead of 52. So no, most notable theologians and scholars and Bible guys look at this text and they say, listen, this text does not belong here. Finally, if someone should decide that the material is authentic, it would be very difficult to justify that view based on, based on the language. In other words, they use words in this text that John doesn't use anywhere else in his gospel. Now, why am I saying this? Why is this important? It's because you're going to go out there and you're going to share the gospel with somebody in a week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month from now. And somebody's going to pull your card. They're going to talk about all the inaccuracies of Scripture. And so as a pastor, I think I need to start preparing you for that rather than just giving you a bunch of good, goody two-shoe stuff and then you walk out there and get literally slaughtered and maimed by the lions out in the field. Does that make sense? You need to understand what this Bible, what, what, what the process by which this Bible came to be, okay? So you say, all right, well, why are we studying it then if this manuscript, if this portion of Scripture doesn't appear to be in the original manuscripts. Why are we studying it? Two reasons. One is because the original, uh, the, the, many of the theologians and scholars agree that even though it doesn't belong in the earliest of manuscripts, they still believe that it actually happened. They believe that it was passed down by church tradition. Does that make sense? And it was later injected into the, late, into the later Greek manuscripts. And so even though it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, they believe that it actually was a real story, a real narrative of Jesus' gospel life, okay? So that's the first reason. 
And the second reason, as we're about to see, is that as we study it, we're going to realize that it is very consistent with the rest of Jesus' way of handling all of his issues throughout the Gospels, okay? And so we learn something as we walk through this story, even if we say that maybe this story wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. We learn something, and we also realize that maybe it still happened, and so we want to talk about it. Does that make sense? So let's talk about it. The story begins in verse 1. I'll pick up in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This story begins with a shift in the timeline. Jesus was at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He was at the Feast of the Booths, and he was talking about the fact that he was, uh, was going to be pouring out living water, and that living water was the Spirit of God. And then it kind of shifts into this story, all right? And, and this story is Jesus returning from the temple the next morning. Crowds are beginning to surround him, and the religious elite see their chance to try and trip Jesus up. So notice that the religious elite will often show that they truly have no real concern for the holiness of God, and they'll show that they have no true real concern for the justice of God. These type of folks often only bring up the law to gain support for their cause and for their side. They aren't interested in the law. They aren't interested in obedience to the law. They just try to bring the law up whenever it benefits them. They cite the law as their grounds for stoning this woman. But what does the law actually say when you read it? It's, it's actually cited in Leviticus chapter 20, the Old Testament. And this is what it says in verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Did you hear that? Now, the last time I checked, it took two people to commit adultery. Maybe my math is off. But the last time I checked, it took two people to commit it. So here's the obvious question that we have for the Pharisees and the scribes that are gathered in John chapter 8. Where's the man? Where's the man? See, they are eager to bring the law, but they have no desire to actually execute it truthfully and rightfully and righteously. The religious elite's goal is not holiness. Their goal is not justice. Their goal is often, and in this case even, power. And whenever a threat to their power rises to the surface, they have to snuff it out. They have to find ways to, to, to put it to bed, to put it to rest, to put it to death. And Jesus is a threat. Their goal in their engagement with Jesus is to trip him up and to cause people to see him as an enemy of the law, an enemy of Moses, and ultimately an enemy of God. That's what they're trying to do. And if they can accomplish this, then they can snuff out any support that is rising for Jesus. This is why you will see them twist the law on a dime to make it more convenient for their purposes. In a marriage where spouses are jockeying for the upper hand, you will see this dynamic on display constantly. Husbands and spouses argue and fight and bicker and fuss and complain. And the concern for what is right is most concerning when the transgression is the other spouse's concern. I'll say that again. The concern for what is right is most concerning 
when the concern is the other spouse's concern. I'm most concerned about what's right when it serves my immediate cause and my immediate interests, right? And so you'll have these arguments, and, and, and it'll be like, you, you're always on your phone, right? And it's like, okay, I'm always on my phone. And then, and, then, and then when you see your spouse on their phone, you'll be like, well, you're always on your phone. It's like, well, I mean, it, are, you, are you worried about it being right, or are you just worried about catching your spouse and tripping them up so you can feel good about yourself? Does that make sense? Because if you were worried about it being right, then you wouldn't be on your phone and they wouldn't be on theirs either, right? Be leery of those whose use of God's moral law always is serving to give them the upper hand. Be leery of those, the religious elite, who find a way to quote God's moral law only when it is serving to give them an upper hand, but are silent with God's law when it confronts them. Aside from the grab for religious and political power that we see the Pharisees and scribes doing right now, there's also a grab for, for, for gender power. There's a power dynamic at work in this text. D.A. Carson, the, the, the New Testament theologian that I quoted earlier, says this about this power dynamic at work. As it is in many societies around the world, so it is here when it comes to sexual sins. The woman was much more likely to be in legal and social jeopardy than her paramour. The man could lead a respectable life, quote-unquote, while masking the same sexual sins with a knowing wink. <laughs> it's, just, it's just guys being guys, you know what I'm saying, bro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see, man, look at that girl. She is something, ain't she? Scandalous, boy, I tell you. You tracking with that? Seeing, seeing, seeing sin through different lenses based on the gender itself. The woman, scandalous. Hoochie mama. The dude, player, player, all right, brother, yeah. Oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, you good, you good, get on out of here, get on out of here. You, you come with us, we got some, we, can, we got some judgment for you. Are you tracking with that? In one of the ancient prayers that was prayed in the, in the, in the New or actually in Jewish tradition, it, it was said, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. In, in, the, in the Jews' oral tradition that was captured in writings called the Mishnah, it taught that a woman was like a Gentile slave who could be obtained through intercourse money or through some sort of contractual formal agreement. Women were much limited, much more limited in their rights and abilities, and this oppression was on full demonstration here in this moment as well. We've discussed it before, right? But one of the many radical, cultural, disrupting ways of Jesus was the way in which he dealt with women. Amen. 
He disrupted culture and how he dealt with women. He talked to women when, in, in times and in moments where people thought it was, not, it was not allowed or it was forbidden to talk to them. He let them join the camp and let them join the team. He, he, let, them, he let them learn of him when really back then women couldn't actually be considered serious scholars and, and have rabbi relationships where they sat at the feet of the rabbi and learned from them. But Jesus admitted women into that relationship. He engaged him at times when it was considered out of bounds to do so. Value and worth are, 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 are on display here. How much do they value women? They don't value them enough to make sure that our judgment is right and fair to bring both the man and the woman. We're just, you know, we get the woman, that's all we were looking for anyway. That's all we need. I mean, we're, we're not really serious about this anyway. We're just trying to figure, figure something out to trip Jesus up. So value and worth, if we're not careful, we can sometimes undermine it just in, the very, in our language, the things that we tell our young men, the things that we tell our young daughters. Don't hear me saying that men and women are the same, because they're not. There is a massive difference between gender equality and gender uniformity, all right? Now, our culture doesn't understand that. And so our culture equates gender equality to gender uniformity. But that's not the same. We are not the same. We're equal, but we're not the same. Our function is not the same. Our brains don't even work the same. Scientifically, biologically, your brain doesn't work the same as that guy over here that, you, that you're sitting next to or you, you can point out. You do not work the same. If you don't believe me, follow a husband and a wife around and wait for the moment when the wife asks the husband, what is he thinking about? And the husband responds, nothing. <laughs> me and my wife talked about this yesterday. Wait for that moment. Wait for that moment because the wife is going to be incredulous. She's going to be shocked. She's going to be, uh, I mean, aghast. She's going to be, you know, what are you talking about? Of course you're thinking about something. I mean, you, I mean, what are you, a plant? You're thinking about something. Of course you're thinking about something. And the man's going to be like, all right. <laughs> I ain't thinking about nothing. It's just, you know, it's good. As one of my pastor friends said yesterday when we was at a retreat, you know, I wasn't thinking about anything until you started talking. Now I'm thinking about what you just said. You just, you just got in my nothing box. I was good. It was peaceful there, quiet. And then you start talking. Now I'm thinking about what you just said. But we're different. We're, we're, we are really and truly different. How many men have had that experience? Show of hands. See? It's not just me. I'm not the only empty-headed person in here. This is manhood that we're talking about. We are different, but we are equal. But because of the inequality present in first century Jerusalem, this woman was being used as a pawn for the religious elite's games. Speaking of which, let's talk about the games. So verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So the goal for the elite was to get Jesus to commit one way or the other on this judgment, and whichever way he committed, they were going to catch him, okay? If they could get him to say, let her go, then they could argue that he was soft on the law. Does that make sense? 
You guys have seen this. If you're old, you, some of you guys are too young, but but they used to do these kind of things with uh, uh, political campaign ads. They still do it every once in a while. But some guy, some guy will pass a law, or some guy will vote for a law. I, there was one time where a guy voted that prisoners uh, that were con uh, having good behavior could be let go or could have pardons on the weekends, right? And it was, it was, you know, and there was a whole lot of things around that particular decision. But basically, he said, "Hey, I think this is a good deal. I think this is encouraging, you know, nonviolent criminals that that have shown steady records of good behavior under parole and under watch and care. Yeah, we're going to give them an opportunity to experience the outside life." And it and, and it backfired, right? It backfired, and and some guy did some just un, incredible, incredible things to to a young lady, and and. And the campaign ads went ballistic. They went ballistic. They started plastering this guy's name all across, all across the TV saying, he's soft on crime, he's soft on law. Does that make sense? They, they, they use it as an opportunity to say, hey, nope, this guy, he's not who you want. And so if Jesus would have said, let her go, then the Pharisees would have leapt on that and said, he's soft. He's not serious about God's law. He doesn't love God. But if he says, kill her, execute your judgment, then they're going to say, well, I thought you were full of mercy. I thought you were full of truth and grace and all that stuff that, that you, you're going around telling people. What's, what's up with that? See, he's not as loving as he says he is. Do you understand what's happening? Amen. And so, not to mention that they would love to get him wrapped up. I didn't even mention this point, but not to mention they would just love to get him wrapped up in all of the things that, all of the Roman authority stuff. And so what I mean by that is that Rome has the authority in this land. Nobody can really execute a death sentence without Rome's sanction. And so they would love to have Jesus say, yeah, kill her, and then say, hey, Caesar, you heard what Jesus said? He's trying to take your throne. He's trying to take over. That's the only reason he said it. So there's all sorts of different angles that they're playing right now with Jesus. But Jesus wouldn't take the bait. Just sat there drawing on, you know, writing on the floor, writing on the ground, rather. Wisdom is found often in our silence, folks. Watch the angles. Watch the angles. Give yourself time to see the angles before you start. You understand? Now, now, regarding what he's writing on the ground, no one knows. Stop, stop, stop trying to guess. We don't know. We don't know. And anybody that says they know is purely speculating. The best thought I've heard is that some, somebody said, hey, well, the Roman, Roman officials, they would write on the ground the judgment for the person that was in front of them. They would write it on the ground before they actually pronounced it. So maybe Jesus was writing his judgment of this woman on the ground. That's a pretty good one. Reality is, we don't know. We don't know. And so he's right on the ground, he's silent, but they keep digging at him. Verse 7 says, and they continued to ask him. And so he stood up and he responded. So they kept pressing, they kept trying to figure out how can we trip him up. Jesus, what are you going to say? Jesus, what are you going to say? This is a real question. This is an important question, Jesus. What do you have to say about it? And so Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he went back and started drawing on the ground again. Don't you like that? That's like, that's a G move, man. That's just, that's, that's, a, that's, 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 that's just a, you know, you're drawing on the ground. They beg, man, you going to say something? You going to say something? You give, say something. Then you go back and draw back on the ground. 
wait for everybody to scramble off. And that's what happens. Everybody literally just starts leaving. So what's going on right there? Well, there's two things that you can think about. One is that Jesus was calling out the fact that these people, none of them amongst them were perfect. And that's the more popular way of looking at it, right? Like he who is without sin, sin in general, sin period. Let him who is without sin throw the stone. Actually, there's some, some, some speculation on that, though. A lot of theologians don't necessarily believe that that's what Jesus was saying. And here's why. You can't execute any judgment if that's the case. If we execute judgment based on let he who was without any sin, let him judge, then there's no judgment that can be executed. So what many theologians actually believe is that that's not what he was saying. What he was actually saying was let he who was without this sin cast the stone. In other words, these religious elite bring this woman to Jesus, and they say, she's guilty of adultery. What do you suggest we do with her? You know, I mean, they, they really thought they were cool with it, right? And so Jesus responds, do what you must. Whoever amongst you that's not guilty of it, go ahead and throw it. Far more perceptive than they were ready for. Way more perceptive than they were ready for. Because what he's doing is not just, not just saving the woman, but he's exposing them in the hypocrisy at work. And so what, what ends up happening here is they say, oh, oh uh, um, well, hold on then. Let's think about this, Jesus. And then they start trickling off. You say, if that's the case, why is it that none of the Pharisees and scribes have been stoned yet for this infraction. See the answer that we talked about at the beginning. The answer for that question is the same reason the only one in danger of punishment right now is the adulterous woman. Do you understand? Because of the male-dominant culture, even as Jesus exposes this sin, None of them felt the wrath or the penalty of the sin because it wasn't on them. It was on the woman, should they be caught. Does that make sense? This is an eventual end to all efforts of self-righteousness. Judgment of others based on false ideals of our holiness will ultimately lead us to being exposed. When we leap on our high horse and we try and trip up someone else in their sin to serve our own benefits and purposes. It is only a matter of time before exposure comes. You see it all the time, right, politicians? Right? Well, I've never. And then next thing you know, like the next day, it's like, hey, we just, well, you know, several reporters have just uncovered, you know, this particular. It's like, man, that was fast. Happens all the time. And so here, self-righteousness is being exposed. So this is what happens, and we're drawn to a close. Verse 10, everybody leaves. They're shamed. Nobody there to cast a stone. Nobody there to throw a stone. The only person left is Jesus and this woman. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Because remember, Jesus just went back drawn to the ground, drawn on the ground. He looks up, hey, everybody's gone. Has no one condemned you, he asked her. And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go 
from now on and sin no more. Now, there's a text in Romans chapter 8 that kind of highlights this. Well, you know, at the beginning, at the beginning, I told you that one of the reasons why, we, why we're studying this, studying this text is because it's consistent with the rest of the Bible, right? It's consistent with the way that Jesus handles himself and speaks throughout all of Scripture. It's consistent with the way that the apostles spoke. So one of the texts that kind of highlights that is verse 1 of Romans 8. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. For sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So there is no condemnation. There is now, there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation has been condemned by Jesus. In other words, there is no cloud hanging over those that are in Jesus. There's no longer this shame of past sin hanging over those that are in Jesus. There's no longer this deep, dark regret hanging over those that are now in Jesus. Jesus has freed you of your burden. He has freed you of your shame. Stop running back to it. He's freed you of it. It's one of the greatest benefits of being in Christ that we often ignore, right? Is that we've really and genuinely been freed from it. This woman who is preparing to face the judgment of death, and, and, and whether we want to argue about the particulars regarding their fair execution of the law, it was still her guilty. She never says, I'm not guilty, I'm innocent, right? Never says that. So she's guilty of her sin. But because in this moment she is present with Jesus, Jesus says, no one condemns you, including me. Stop wrestling Jesus for your shame. Stop wrestling Jesus for your guilt. It's gone. Does that make sense? There is now, there, um, now there is therefore, so I'm sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of of sin and death. But, but, but here, here, here's, the, here, here's the thing. There's freedom from the penalty of sin, but there's also freedom from the bondage of sin, which is why he says after he tells her, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. And the order is important. Scott Saul's a pastor at of uh, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, says this all the time. But, but if you flip-flop the order between neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, you lose the entire gospel. If you flip-flop the order and it goes, go and sin no more, and after you go and sin no more, then I don't condemn you, that's not the gospel. Amen. That is not good news. 
Because that means that my status in the kingdom, that means that my eternal destination rests on my performance. And folks, I can't perform that well. And neither can you. None of us can perform that well. And so the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus speaks to us and he says, I don't condemn you. And 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 then he says, now go and sin no more. Does that make sense? See, what flows out of Romans 8 is this first declaration that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But as it flows, he begins to talk about the power that has been given us in Christ Jesus throughout the chapter. For example, in verse 9 of chapter 8, he says, you, ho- who, uh, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So he's saying because condemnation is, has been condemned and you no longer have to hang your head in regret and shame, because you're in Christ, you've been set free, but you've also been gifted with the freedom to fight. And so what that means is that mercy and grace Don't come empty-handed. In other words, Jesus doesn't just simply say, I forgive you, and then leave you to fend for yourself. And continue on wallowing in the mud. But Jesus says, I forgive you. Now here's my spirit to empower you, to help you wage war and fight against the sin." to help you wage war and fight against the addiction, to help you wage war and fight against the things that you want to say and the people you want to tell off, and to help you wage war and fight against being bitter and being angry, and to help you wage war against the fight of lust, and to help you wage war against the fight of greed. Here's my spirit so that you can go and sin no more. The difference between a life preserver and a rope. Does that make sense? Mercy mercy just isn't a a life preserver. I'm drowning in my sin. All right, man, you all right? I'm not drowning anymore, but I'm I'm still just hanging out in my sin. All right, brother. All right, man, you take care, brother. Take care, man. I got I got some things to do. I got a meeting at five. No. Mercy cast a rope out there. Pulls you from underneath the waters of sin. But continues to pull you back to the boat. Does that make sense? That's what sanctification is for you. He pulls you out of the waters of sin. But sanctification is the constant tug back to the boat. So with this woman, he doesn't leave her empty-handed and just says, yeah, I don't don't condemn you. Go and, you know, continue doing whatever whatever it is you're doing. 
before you got here, and they were about to stone you. Hopefully they don't catch you again. That's not, that's not how he responds, right? The Bible says that the grace of God has come to us, training us to renounce ungodliness. And so grace shows up in God's gifting for us to fight. We can rely on the Bible, folks. Because even the one or two times that there are texts like these that don't show up in the earliest of manuscripts, it's only by God's great sovereignty that they weave so tightly into the original canon, isn't it? And so we can trust him, not only with the scriptures, but we can trust him with our sin, that if we are in him, if we are in him by faith, if we are trusting him with our lives, then he no longer condemns us and he has given us and gifted us the ability to come out of the water. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are grateful and thankful for you. We ask and we pray, Lord God, that you would help us. Help us, Lord God, no longer wallow in our shame of sin. But Lord God, help us, help us fight our sin. Father, Father, may we not rest comfortably in bitterness, in anger, in lust, in greed, in unforgiveness, in, in malice, gossip, May we not rest in that. But Father, may the gift of your spirit that has given us life and that has set us free and that has condemned condemnation, may that gift continue its perfect work by sanctifying us and making us more and more and more like you until we finally see you. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.